like to welcome you all to the fourth session of the Middle East Center Seminar. In our split subjects, we are looking tonight at the state of Palestine. Two issues that we've been addressing this term being the state of Egypt under President Sisi and the state of Palestine and the issues around the debates on the recognition of Palestinian statehood. And it's a great pleasure to welcome as our speaker tonight, Dr. Phyllis Starkey. Dr. Starkey served as a member of parliament for Milton Keynes for 13 years and was in those years a really staunch supporter of justice in the Middle East and a whole range of issues, particularly issues surrounding the rights of Palestinians. We first met in Beirut a number of years ago, and um, and since then, this college has been very fortunate to count Phyllis as an academic visitor. Phyllis has been a huge support for the work that we do, and just injecting ideas about people we should be inviting, or subjects we should be addressing. When I had the brainstorm, largely inspired by the, the debate that took place in Parliament about recognizing Palestinian statehood last autumn, Phyllis was the first person I went to and said, you know, this is a subject we really should be developing. Who are the good people to get? And I can say that of the good people to get, all the best names came from Phyllis. When I dropped her name, they said yes and agreed to come. And, uh, and I'm very grateful to Phyllis for taking on her own shoulders the question about not just the debate that went on in Westminster, but the bigger context within which European interests play out on the uh, Palestinian question. Phyllis has, um, since leaving the village of Westminster, been uh, very active still in Middle Eastern affairs. She is a trustee for Medical Aid for Palestine, so you've kept a very active involvement in Justice for Palestine, and um, a wide range of human rights organizations across Europe that have been involved in trading away peace uh, report that was brought out in 2012, from which I believe a great deal of tonight's talk is going to come as well. So to welcome you is sort of wrong, Phil, since this is your Middle East Center, but to say that we're very grateful to you for the help you've given and for taking the time to speak to us tonight. The floor is yours. Thanks very much, Eugene. Um, well, those of you who were here last week uh, and listened to Christian Berger's talk, um, in one sense, you're going to get it, the same stuff all over again, but from a completely different angle. Obviously, Mr. Berger was talking from the point of view of somebody at the heart of the European Union's External Action Service. Um, and what I'm going to talk about is from the point of view of politicians, NGOs, and the public um, across Europe. Um, so the completely other end, if I may put it that way, of the uh, policy-making process. Um, and um, obviously, because EU foreign policy is actually decided by the member states, um, then it is precisely the politics that goes on within each member state and the influences upon uh, parliamentarians and governments that actually drives then the way in which um, the politicians act within the uh, ministerial councils and tell the external action service what the policies will be. Um, so much of, of the actual pressure comes from within the individual member states and that's really what I'm going to talk about. I'm going to talk about that. I'm going to talk about how extremely pusillanimous and timid the member states are 
in formulating policy on this particular issue, how little they use the levers that the European Union has, and how often they delegate or subcontract the little action that is taken to other parties, noticeably Parliament, civil society and business. Okay, so this is the subjects I'm going to um, cover. I'm first going to talk about how the European Union's rhetoric, and when I talk about the European Union, that's shorthand basically in this issue for the Foreign Affairs Council and the Ministerial Councils. Um, the, their failure to convert their rhetoric, which on the most, for the most part is, is pretty good actually, their rhetoric, uh, into action. Um, the reasons why I think they fail to do that and then some examples of where um, I think they're delegating action to others, and the two um, cases I'm going to talk about are, one, the issue of Palestinian statehood and the various parliamentary votes across Europe, and two, action against settlements. And then finally, I'm going to talk about one example where the EU has been very active, uh, which is the actions they've taken against the Russian occupation of Crimea and how that is a rather excellent model what they ought to be doing um, on the Israeli settlement um, policy. So this is just an example relating to Gaza of EU rhetoric. This was; These are the main points paraphrased from the statement that the Foreign Affairs Council made on the 15th of August 2014. And it's actually really quite a radical statement. Um, no return to the status quo ante, that that is not an option, that we, what they, is needed is a durable ceasefire, that means a sustainable one, and for that you've got to lock, lift the blockade. Living conditions in Gaza must improve, and there should be international monitors, and the EU has offered international monitors and indeed a border force to meet Israel's legitimate security needs. And that's very interesting that they included the word legitimate, and what that means is that the European Union defines what are Europe, Israel's legitimate security needs. They don't just take what Israel says is their security need and then deliver it, which is obviously what they've been doing up until now. And finally, and this is a direct quote, Gaza is an integral part of the occupied Palestinian territories and will be part of the state of Palestine. Fantastic statement. Obviously, six months later, there's been minimal improvement. The blockade's largely in place. 100,000 people homeless. Entry of construction materials is less than 4% of pre-blockade levels. It's going to take about 50 years at this rate to actually rebuild all the homes. Um, and the situation of the population is absolutely desperate and the renewal of the conflict seems extremely likely. So, rhetoric, brilliant, action, useless. And one of the things which <laughs> um, Christian Berger said last week was that is the European Union is often um, uh, criticised for being a payer and not a player. And he said, oh, but you have to understand that being a payer is an act, it is playing. Well, that is true, but... In the case of Gaza, we are paying, not that much of the money is actually getting through to the Gazans, and that is actually not an action. It's not causing the situation to improve at all. So it is actually the European Union being just a pair and not a player. So why is it, then, that the European Union is so weak? Well, I think there are various reasons. The first is that they prioritise the peace process every time over adherence to international law. So the priority is always to back 
the US efforts and to keep Israel in the negotiations. That is the priority all the time. And if that means forgetting about the European Union's obligations under international law, then they will do that in order to keep the peace process going and to back the US. And settlements are a particularly important issue to them, as this is a, a direct quote from every Foreign Affairs Council statement that comes out. Settlements are illegal and an obstacle to peace. And that's a particularly important issue because they threaten the two-state solution. That's the reason why they um, are now beginning to concentrate on settlements and why most of their démarches refer to, to Israel's constant settlement expansion and why the EU has started to draw some red lines, although it doesn't seem to be doing anything about um, enforcing them. Because the settlements are actually an obstacle to peace, that's more important to them than the fact that the settlements are illegal. The second problem is that they have this belief that Israel, and by Israel I mean the Israeli government, I know there's diversity of opinion within Israel of course, but um, that the Israeli government responds better to carrots than to sticks. So they're constantly trying to give them more incentives, um, even though the evidence is that um, they can give them incentives till they're blue in the face and Israel would just go on doing what it was intending to do in the first place. So, for example, with a great fanfare when the peace talks seemed to be, the Kerry talks seemed to be about to fail but had not actually failed, the European Union unveiled a big package of incentives um, that it would give Israel, and some for the Palestinians as well, but the Palestinians weren't really the problem, a big package of incentives for, the, uh, for Israel to encourage it to actually start to negotiate in a meaningful way. And the European Union um, diplomats were um, extremely disappointed. Not only did this, these incentives have no effect on the Israeli government, but actually they received no publicity within Israel itself, so it didn't affect Israeli public opinion either. And contrast this with when the European Union did take the one positive action it's taken on settlements, which I'll talk about a bit later, which was insisting that um, Israel's participation in the science and research programme of the European Union would, not, would only be open to institutions within Israel's 1967 borders and not any base beyond. When they announced that, that caused a huge debate within Israel because Netanyahu refused to sign up to it and threatened that Israel would leave the science research program, which woke up every scientist in Israel who said, basically, you can't do that, we need the contacts, you've got to rethink. So there was a huge public debate about that, and Netanyahu actually backtracked and signed something, and the European Union kind of helped him by getting the thing he signed to be worded in such a way that it saved his blushes, but actually achieved what the European Union wanted. So actually the evidence is that the Israeli government responds better to sticks and carrots, but the European Union doesn't seem to have learned that lesson. The third point is about the position the European Union's got itself into, where basically we as European taxpayers are paying for the cost of the occupation. That is, we pay to stop, uh, to keep the Palestinian economy going um, and in extremists to stop the people in Gaza from starving. We're paying all of that. We're paying all the wage bill of the Palestinian Authority, for example, all the, the, the um, state building of institutions within the Palestinian um, uh, territories is paid for by European taxpayers. And, of course, under international law, Israel is the occupying power. They actually have the um, duty 
to pay um, the, for the needs of the, the population that they're occupying. But we're actually paying for it. So they get the occupation, the advantages of it, without paying for it. And the European Union has got itself trapped into that following the Oslo process, and it doesn't know how to get itself out. Because if it just takes the money away, there's absolutely no evidence that the is Israeli government would fill the gap. And obviously it would be ordinary Palestinians who would um, suffer. So they're in a real bind there. And the finally, final point is that any action taken by a European Union member state on this matter, and therefore by the European Union, is extremely controversial domestically. Now, this is not because, and I'll show you in a second, um, it is not because um, the publics of European Union countries are very favourable to Israel and disfavourable to the Palestinians, quite the opposite. It is, however, that people feel very, very strongly on this issue, and therefore any decision that you take will be controversial. So, for example, when the British government finally introduced just before um, it lost power in 2010, um, the advice to retailers in the UK that they had to label settlement products as being from settlements, not from Israel. The reason they delayed that until absolutely the last moment, because they thought that when they announced it, they would get stick from the, if I can put it this way, pro-Palestinians who would say it wasn't strong enough, and stick from the pro-Israelis who would say it was too strong. And so it was the controversy that stopped them, not... Who, who would support it, right? And that's the same across all member states. Now, just to remind you where European public opinion is, this is the BBC World Survey 2014, and the question is, is this, they ask it for every a lot of countries, but is Israel's influence positive or negative? And in the UK, Germany, France, Spain, the huge majority of the public say it's negative, Right? And this is, um, this is in contrast, of course, to what you get if you do it in the US, where it's completely the other way around, where 52% think it's positive. Um, and if you look at what affects this opinion, this is a YouGov poll that was, that's taken over time, which asks, thinking of the conflict, do your own sympathies lie more with the Israelis or with the Palestinians? And you can see that over time, particularly in response to the um, uh, uh, latest, the most recent Israeli operation in Gaza, that the opinion has become more favourable to the Palestinians and less favourable to the Israelis. So what affects public opinion is actually what the Israeli government does. That's what affects public opinion um, in the UK and I suspect in other countries. And this also um, shows that... Um, that amongst people who vote for, declare themselves as voters for Labour or the Lib Dems, um, they are more likely to be pro-Palestinian. Uh, but even amongst Conservative voters, 23% would say they were more sympathetic to Palestinians and only 15% to the Conservatives. And even amongst UKIP's voters, 18% are, more, are sympathetic to Palestinians and only 11% to Israelis. So, although, and if you ask, do an age thing, younger voters are more likely to be more more um, uh, favourable to, to Palestinians. So public opinion is very strongly in favour of the Palestinians and way ahead of, um, of the government. Now, to turn then to two of the examples which I think illustrate where I say that when governments do take action, they, they kind of subcontract it to others. I'm going to talk about um, the votes about Palestinian statehood. And this is, is my kind of timeline of, of how things went. Um, the Palestinian application to the UN was in, in first one was in 2011. 
um, a vase, which many of you probably know, which is a, um, an, a sort of e-campaigning tool that goes across Europe, it did a European-wide petition in support of Palestinian statehood in 2011 and collected 500,000 signatures in mere four days. And it had a huge demonstration outside the Berlimont building in Brussels. And um, YouGov did a poll. Um, here we are. My vote, government should vote for Palestinian state in the UN Assembly. This is 2011. And this is UK, Germany, France. Um, the, the one on the left the, is um, four. The little orange one is against, and the right-hand one is undecided in each column. So you can see that, interestingly, Germany and France, the public is even was even more supportive than in the UK. UK had a lot of don't knows. Um, but in each of them, of these three countries, um, there was a huge majority amongst the population for um, their government supporting the Palestinian state in the General Assembly. Um, it didn't get to the General Assembly till 2012. The vote, as you know, was for non-member observer status, and it was overwhelmingly won by 138 to 9, with 41 abstentions. Interestingly, as an example of the European Union's common foreign and security policy, they couldn't decide. Um, and so they were allowed to do their own thing, and 14 um, voted for. One, the Czech Republic, which is more Zionist than the Zionists, as far as I can see, uh, voted against, and 12 of them, including the UK, abstained. Most of the ones that abstained were former um, uh, parts of the Soviet Union, or the Eastern Bloc, anyway, uh, plus um, the Netherlands and Germany, of course, and the UK. Um, so, um, so they split three ways. Nothing much happened until 2014. Sweden is the only European government um, which has recognised the state of Palestine. There are some of the former Eastern Bloc which had recognised Palestine when they were part of the USSR and haven't unrecognised. Mm -hmm. um, and there have been parliamentary votes, not just in the UK, but in Ireland, Spain, France, Portugal, Belgium, Luxembourg, and at the European Parliament, all won. Um, the narrowest majority, I think, was in France. Um, so I thought I'd just um, talk a little bit about the UK parliamentary debate as to what went on. Um, am I being too slow? You're not being too slow, and if you don't get to this point, I'm going to really say you haven't delivered. So take your time here. <laughs> this is interesting. Okay, right. So this is a bit of an internal... Right. So the UK debate, how did it... What was the, the trigger for it? The trigger actually is from the public, right? This, this parliament, that is the one since 2010 has instituted some slight changes which have given more power to backbench MPs to actually initiate debates within Parliament itself. And it's also started the idea of having e-petitions on the parliamentary website. And basically, if you get more than 100,000 signatures, then, um, then there's a procedure for it to be considered to have a debate on the issue in Parliament. It's not automatic, but it gets you past the into consideration. So it start, this started off with an e-petition. Well, more than one, really. There were several different e-petitions, and they very quickly passed the threshold. So then um, a number of members of parliament within um, parliament from all those four parties, so the three big ones plus the Green MP in the singular, um, joined together and made a request to the Backbench Business Committee, which is basically the committee that decides um, who can get debates. 
And um, the interesting thing was that certainly within Labour, Conservative and Lib Dem, there are um, uh, interest groups within each of these parties. Um, in Labour, it's called the Labour Friends of Palestine in the Middle East, Lib Dem Friends of Palestine, and in the Conservatives, it's the Middle East Council. Um, so it was MPs from those groups who actually coordinated with each other and went, took the request to the backbench committee and decided to have a vote um, in support of Palestinian statehood. Um, this then means the front bench have to decide what they're going to do. So the Conservative position and instruction was that ministers and MPs should abstain and preferably not go to the debate either. Um, Labour eventually um, got to a three-line whip to support. Um, that means that it's you're allowed to not follow the three-line whip if it's a matter of conscience, but you are, generally speaking, expected to do what you're told um, and to vote for it. Um, but this only happened after an amendment had been accepted, which I'll just explain in a second. And the Lib Dems said, well, ministers would have to abstain because they're part of the government. Uh, the party supported recognition, so the MPs should do what they felt was right. So the result was 274 in favour, 12 against, and of those 12, one was a Liberal Democrat, um, Mr Beath, Alan Beath, six Conservatives and five members of the Democratic Unionist Party. Um, now, the, those of you who don't know, the Democratic Unionist Party is a Unionist Party from Northern Ireland. And the, the one now, really, they've got rid of all the other Unionist Parties. And the reason that they voted is because in the context of Northern Ireland, um, which is, as you know, a very sectarian society, they pick up teams. And Sinn Féin and the SDLP support the Palestinians. Therefore, obviously, the Unionists support Israel. And if you go to, to, North, to Belfast and look at some of the famous mural, murals, they, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict gets conscripted by each side into their lists of heroes and villains. So, it's, um, so that's why the DUP were out in force, all of them, and they all voted against. Um, now, <clears throat> the, um, there was a huge amount of um, manoeuvring uh, that went on behind the scenes about this, obviously, and it's quite clear that the um, pro-Israeli, as a short-time term, um, faction knew they were going to be slaughtered, metaphorically speaking, and so their tactic was not to go, if preference, and for there not to be a vote. And the way in which they tried to make sure there was not a vote is that what happens when you call the vote is that each side of the debate has to appoint uh, two members as tellers. Uh, well, f yeah. Uh, who check that the votes are being properly counted, the yes and no are being properly counted. So you have a yes person and a no person at each lobby to check that they get the same number, right? It's a kind of method of internal control. And if one side doesn't appoint tellers, the vote doesn't happen. So what happened is the vote was called and there were no tellers for the no's. So two of the yeses volunteered to be tellers for the no's and and so the yes people were voting both sides and made sure that the vote happened it's a ridiculous parliamentary manoeuvre now to get to the um, wording of the actual um, resolutions they were voting on the original resolution was this one at the front 
um, delightfully short that this House believes the government should recognise the state of Palestine alongside the state of Israel. The second amendment was put forward by the pro-Israeli side um, and wanted to add on the conclusion of successful peace negotiations between the Israeli government and the Palestinian Authority, thereby effectively giving a veto to the Israeli government, because if they didn't agree, then there wouldn't be a recognition of the state of Palestine. Um, Jack Straw, former foreign secretary, um, suggested a different amendment, which was as a contribution to securing a negotiated two-state solution. So not essential, but a contribution. And that's what um, stopped the debate within that had been going on within the Labour front bench and made sure that Labour um, said that its members should all vote for the resolution. So the final resolution was, this House believes the government should recognise the State of Palestine alongside the State of Israel as a contribution to securing a negotiated two-state solution. And that was the final one. The government position, as enunciated by the Middle East minister during the debate, was the UK will bilaterally recognise a Palestinian state when we judge that can best help bring about peace. So, I mean, there's like, you know, a tiny little thickish cigarette paper between the positions of the government and the people who voted for this resolution. Mm -hmm. And the UK's view, which I think is that of many governments, is that this is a weapon you can use once and once only, and they want to be the ones that judge the point at which you use it and where it is most useful. Mm -hmm. But the effect of this, when you put it in the context of all the other parliamentary votes across Europe, is that the member state governments have opted out and have left it to their parliaments to send a message um, to the Israeli government and the Israeli public a sort of warning shot saying look you know we're going to do it but not quite just yet the parliament's warning you and look at how many parliaments have done this including the European parliament so they've subcontracted it basically to parliaments who actually in this case are much closer to um, the pu public opinion than the governments are um, I've just summarised some of the points um, made during the debate because I think it's very interesting if you have an idle hour you can read through the entire Hansard debate and it does give you a really interesting um, idea of the state of parliamentary opinion um, so over and over again people were saying we need to do this because it's urgent we've got to give some hope to the Palestinian Authority we've got to protect the two-state solution that um, they alluded to the failure of the UK government to vote for statehood in the UN in 2011. Um, huge amount of exasperation with the current Israeli government, uh, largely over settlements or over the conflict in Gaza. And that was particularly striking amongst those MPs who would describe themselves as being friends of Israel. And the one that got all the publicity was, of course, Richard Ottaway, because he is a conservative, a friend of Israel, and the chair of the Foreign Affairs Select Committee. But he was by no means the only one. There were lots and lots and lots of them who announced themselves as being friends of Israel and then said that they um, you know, were exasperated by the Israeli government and that if it carried on as it was, it would soon have very few friends. Interesting, lots of them talked about their personal or their family experience. There were two of them who'd had fathers who served in the British forces in Palestine, one of them before the Second World War, one just after. 
Um, lots of them had been to the region as MPs or before they were MPs. A lot of them had been contacted by constituents. There was an enormous mobilisation of um, constitu people's constituents across the UK before the vote. Um, they, several of um, Tory MP for Pendle cited the school twinning of Pendle for Palestine and said he should be in, his, in a school in his constituency that very day um, because they'd got some, some visitors from, uh, from Palestine there. But he knew they would understand why he was not there and they, they, that they were rather he was in the House voting for, for the resolution. Um, the Hounslow Ramallah twinning was also mentioned by the Labour MP for Hounslow. So a lot of them had had personal experiences from constituents who'd maybe been with the um, ecumenical accompaniers programme uh, in Palestine who were recounting their programme and presumably some of their constituents who were um, um, Palestinian themselves. Um, and of course there were the demonstrations. Um, there was a lot of historical stuff about Britain's responsibility because of the Balfour Declaration. Not many of them mentioned Sykes-Picot, maybe they hadn't read the book. Um, <laughs> and um, they were many of them cited the film The Gatekeepers, which I think had been on the television about um, a week or so beforehand, and which is, is stunning, listening to all these security people um, basically um, taking apart their own government's policy. Um, and there had also been a letter organised um, by NGOs from prom various prominent Israelis which was urging uh, the parliament to vote. So um, it, it's a graphic demonstration of uh, the change in parliamentary opinion that there's been over the last decade or so. Um, and I guess the, the best, um, not the best, the strongest signal was if you read the contributions by the few really, really pro-Israeli MPs, uh, the ones who proposed the amendment, um, uh, which were unimpressive, I would have to say, so much so that one of them was actually interrupted by a very senior Conservative colleague who said that he should stop because he seemed to be reading at great speed from an Israeli embassy handout. Ooh which is, like, really poisonous. I mean, you know, you would not expect a senior Tory to say that to a fellow Tory MP. Um, and there were several senior Labour Jewish MPs who were extremely critical of um, the, the Israeli government, though one, uh, Louise Elman, of course, as usual, um, said the opposite. Um, so, you know, as I say, if you've gotten the odd hour, it's um, really an interesting experience. Okay, so the second issue I wanted to talk about is action against settlements. Just to repeat the, council, the Foreign Affairs Council conclusions of 2009, settlements illegal, obstacle to peace, make the two-state solution impossible. So absolutely no doubt about the rhetorical position, but for about the last five years or so, NGOs, MPs and members of the European Parliament have been highlighting to the European Commission that actually despite this stated policy and the fact that under European Union and international law, the European Union should not be recognising Israeli sovereignty over settlements at all, that, in fact, the European Union is um, presiding over very significant financial flows um, from Europe into settlements. Settlement trade... Um, the European Union trade with settlements is 15 times its trade with Palestine in value. Um, and settlement goods had been benefiting from the import duty relief, which is um, a privilege of the EU-Israel Association Agreement, which they should not have been benefiting from. And they were being allowed to be on sale in the European Union, labelled as 
made in Israel when actually they're not made in Israel since they're not in Israel. And finally, that there were entities um, operating in settlements, um, or at least in the OPT, that were receiving funding through the European Union Science and Technology Research Programme. The most obvious one was AHAVA, which was part of a big research programme um, on nanotechnology, but also the Israeli Antiquities Authority, not exactly a blameless operation, um, uh, was um, also receiving European Union funds to participate in a research programme about um, safeguarding cultural heritage. Um, None of this was picked up by um, the, the actual paid staff of the European Commission. It was all activist NGOs and MPs and MEPs that were highlighting this through questions in parliaments in member states and um, in the European Union. And all of this, I guess, did culminate in this report, Trading Away Peace, How Europe Helps Sustain Illegal uh, Israeli Settlements, which um, I helped with. Um, and which was produced in 2012 by 22 NGOs from across 11 European countries. We got a foreword from the former EU Commissioner on External Relations, and there were 12 concrete recommendations to either the Un European Union or member states about ways in which they could make sure that there was no flow of money from the European Union or European Union-based businesses or individuals into um, settlements. Um, so, what did the European Union actually do? So, so was that a Christian aid? Right. Uh, Christian aid, in the UK, the three that actually publicly signed up were Christian aid, medical aid for Palestinians, and there's another one. Um, I can't quite read it. It's a bit small. Oh, the Methodists. Yeah, I think that's the only three British ones. Um, Trocair, which is the Catholic um, charity in the Republic of Ireland, um, and then various others. Um, there were other British NGOs that provided um, support but weren't prepared to sign it. Um, this is a big problem with NGOs that operate in, um, in the region, obviously. Okay, so... Um, What's actually happened on the recommendations? Well, the UK government, as I said, um, in 2009, so before the report, had actually issued advice um, that settlement products um, should be labelled as from settlements, not from Israel. And this actually was the culmination of a huge um, campaigning across the UK involving uh, the public, obviously, but also NGOs behind the scenes and direct approaches to the retail industry. And the food retailers actually wanted the UK government just to ban trade in settlement products because they said it will be much simpler for us. Mm -hmm. Don't, you know, just make us do it, you do it. Just ban, ban it, we'll be happy with do, doing that. Instead, they, they put it on the retailers, which is, you know, to at label the things properly. Now, what's actually happened in the UK is that all of the big food retailers just decided not to sell settlement products altogether, mm -hmm. which is why a lot of activists still think that there is stuff on sale labelled Israel which is from settlements because they don't see settlement products in Sainsbury's or Waitrose, for example. There are some slip-ups now and again, but but they do when they're brought to their attention, they then stop dealing with that, that supplier. So there are no food settlement products, food, um, on sale in the big retailers. 
Um, and um, if you go to Oxford Market, you get the choice between dates from Israel, dates from settlements, and dates from Palestine. Mm -hmm. So you can, at certain times of year. Um, so that was delegated to business, basically. Um, in 2012, the European Commission finally responded to all the evidence that settlement products were enjoying import duty relief, which they were not legally entitled to, by um, setting up a new system where um, the postcode of the place of origin of the product had, if it was from Israel or settlements, had to be on the, the documentation which comes with it thereby putting the duty on the importer to make sure that they checked whether the postcode, there was a list, whether they could ask the Commission, is this postcode in a settlement or in Israel? And then they could make sure, the importer could make sure, that settlement products did not get in uh, with import duty relief, that they paid the full import duty. So again, you delegate it, not onto the Israeli government, to say stop claiming when you shouldn't be, um, and just conform with the procedure that every other importer into the European Union has to do, fill in the forms properly. It was this device where European Israel was allowed just to provide the postcodes of everything and then the importer has to do the work. Um, in 2012, finally, the Foreign Affairs Council committed that um, the Commission would work on making sure that the European Union was properly applying European Union law to its dealings with settlements, i.e. that it would introduce EU-wide labelling guidance. Now, they haven't done it yet, and I think they will do it after the Israeli elections with a great big fanfare, if the wrong government gets in, and say, look, this is a really serious m message to the Israeli government that we're serious about this, we are all going to label settlement products as settlement products. I think that's unutterably pathetic. It's something they're obligated under European Union law to do anyway. Every European Union citizen has the right to know where stuff is from. And um, if it's from a settlement, it's not from Israel, and it should be labelled as such. So, but anyway, only Denmark and Belgium are the other member states that have followed the UK um, uh, a, um, example and actually... Um, instituted their own rules. In 2014, 17 member states, one of which was the UK, in a coordinated fashion, issued advice to businesses, advising them of the financial, legal and reputational risks of investing in settlements. Again, another delegation of power, not don't do business with settlements, but there are real risks of doing business with settlements. You should look at these risks. We're telling you what these risks are, but it's entirely up to you whether you do it or not. So they've delegated it to businesses to decide whether to disinvest or not. And, of course, those businesses are under huge pressure from the BDS campaign um, to, to do exactly that, and many of them have done it. I mean, there is clearly... Um, uh, a lot of disinvestment going on and the advice does strengthen the case for disinvestment because you can now point to government advice but it is an abdication of um, government's own um, obligations I think to just leave it to member states to do this. The one um, exception is that where a business is partly or wholly publicly owned then it has, it is responsible under international law in the same way a government would be 
whereas private businesses don't have quite the same responsibility. So in those cases, then governments do tell publicly or partly publicly owned businesses to disinvest. And the German government did that, for example, with Deutsche Bank when the Deutsche Bank was involved in um, a, a rail system, I think not the Jerusalem Light Rail, another one that was in the OPT, the, the, um, the German government told them to get out and the Dutch government told Royal Dutch Haskening to get out as well because that is also a partly publicly owned company. Um, and then the final one is the fun famous funding guidelines um, confining all EU bilateral programmes to, in shorthand, 1967 Israel. That was brought in in 2013 and it applied most obviously to the Horizon 2020 science programme which started in 2014 and any Israeli entity applying um, to be part of any of the programmes, then the, the person responsible has to sign a declaration that the funded activity would be wholly within 1967 Israel. So for the first time, individual Israeli citizens, if they are academics applying for those programmes, it's put before them that, that you have to sign that all your operations are within 1967 Israel or you can't apply. Um, and the, the same guidelines also apply to financial instruments such as the European Investment Bank and there they are much more rigid. With the bilateral programmes, an entity which operates both in um, Israel and in a settlement can still apply providing the funded activity is wholly within Israel. If it's a financial instrument, a business or a bank that is operating in both um, Israel and the settlements cannot apply because money is fungible. It can move around from one place to another. So the settlement contaminates the whole business. Um, so this should alter the sorts of loan guarantees that the European Investment Bank gives in the future. It will only give it to entities that are wholly um, Israeli, but that's, um, so that's much more stringent. Um, Obviously, what we wanted them to do was to ban settlement trade altogether. They've refused to do that, um, although they have, in a backhand sort of way, done it in a terribly, terribly li limited way, um, which is that they are refusing to recognise Israeli certification of settlement products. And where those settlement products have a need a health certificate, which is poultry, dairy... Um, and all animal products, they will not accept Israeli health certificates. Therefore, those products cannot be imported into the European Union. So there is a, a ban, effectively, but you don't describe it as such, um, on animal products. Um, but um, but it's, it's done in this backhanded way of saying we are absolutely not banning anything, we don't ban anything, but we will not recognise Israeli health certification and we can't possibly um, import settlement products that don't have health certification. They don't say, of course, you could go to the Palestinian Authority and ask them to certify it and then we'd recognise their certificates, but, I mean, that's pretty unlikely. So, to turn to my positive example of where the European Union has actually taken action, which is the Russian annexation of Crimea, right? And this is really 
directly analogous to what they could be getting up to in relation to Israel and settlements. Because these are restrictive measures, which is the nice word that you use for sanctions, because the EU doesn't like using the word sanctions. So these are restrictive measures taken under the relevant part of the treaty. And they have been taken because of Russian annexation of Crimea and Russians' support for separatists who are attacking the territorial integrity of Ukraine. So if you extrapolate that, they could do it against Israel for its annexation of East Jerusalem and effective annexation of the settlements and its attack in uh, attacking the territorial integrity of Palestine. And it's particularly apposite because the legal instrument cites not um, Ukraine's integrity as a nation state, so to speak, but it cites the instrument of the EU's association agreement with Ukraine. And the EU, of course, has an association agreement with the PLO, in fact, um, which covers the entire Palestinian territory that is not 1967 Israel. Um, so the settlements are within the area covered by the association agreement with the PLO. So it's directly analogous. They could use that. They don't have to recognise Palestinian statehood. They already have an agreement, the association agreement, with the PA, which would give them the means to do it. And just so these these are the things that that they've done um, against Russia. There is a total ban on imports from Crimea, including a ban on finance in support of imports, which means insurance or reinsurance, and that basically means nobody will transport those things because they won't get any insurance. There is an asset freeze and a travel ban on 132 individuals involved in undermining Ukraine's territorial activity, which is people involved in the, in the two um, puppet governments within Ukraine, but also various members of the Russian Duma and various Russian bankers, so a, a load of Russian citizens within Russia. There's an asset freeze on various organisations, including the Russian National Commercial Bank, because that bank has basically taken over what was the whatever the Ukrainian bank was in Crimea. And there is a ban on the acquisition of real estate in Crimea, including shares or securities. So they could ban the acquisition of settlement properties, for example, and stop all those property fairs that go on in Finchley and Golders Green persuading British citizens to buy settlement properties. So this is what they could do and this is what they should do um, and that's why um, I would say that the European Union is refusing to use the levers it has got and it's got a model to do so and we should make sure that it should, does use them.